James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, no one who knows the right thing to do, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, it is sin. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to store up your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We pray that you would help us to delight ourselves in the word of God, to follow under its conviction, to seek its comfort, to find its comfort. We ask that you would do this through the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, in us, working in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage uh, emphasizes that recurrent theme in James, that speech is important. The words that come out of our mouths, the words that course through our minds, are very important. And speech and strength of God's word and of his will are also before us. So not only is there an importance of our own speech and how we use it, but also the importance and the strength of God's word and his will. God's God's speech versus man's speech. And there are ways in which we abuse speech in the way that we speak about one another, the way that we think about one one another. And James has already referred to the taming of the tongue, uh, how evil the tongue is, the restlessness of the tongue. Well, this is a very pastoral letter. James is someone who understands and knows how people can wound with their words and how we can tear apart with the way that we think about one another, the thoughts that we have, the criticisms that we might enjoin ourselves uh, to. There are sometimes severe accusations against the sins of Christians, and this passage, uh, these few verses don't disappoint. Uh, Paul, uh, James, not Paul, James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The totality of the church everywhere. It's the totality of believing persons in all places. And he's writing to suffering people who are enduring persecution, trials of various kinds. They're facing temptations. They are wealthy. They are poor. They are people without wisdom. Uh, Christians convinced that their sins have disqualified them from receiving any wisdom from God or mercy. Some with unbridled or untamed tongues who haven't learned the evil of speech yet, some who are guilty of showing partiality, some who don't really understand the importance of words clarifying and demonstrating saving faith and new life in Christ, some who have not made the connection between the way in which we live, work, and talk, and whether or not we are actually Christians. 
faith without fruit, without works, is dead, James tells us. James is writing to people who, in whose hearts dwells jealousy and selfish ambition and boasts and selfishness and quarreling, people who follow their selfish passions and lusts, as we learned last week. James has drawn very distinct lines between worldly behavior and godly behavior. The life of a Christian and the life of a non-Christian. The character and the, the observations of the patterns of one's life who is a worldly person versus one who is a believing person. James has drawn distinct lines between the world and, and, and life in Christ. Worldly behavior and its wisdom, which is earthly and unspiritual and demonic, and godly wisdom, anyone who desires to be, friend, to be a friend with the world is an en- enemy of God, was his conclusion last week. But God's wisdom, God's wisdom is freely available to all people who desire it, who ask him for it. He gives generously without reproach. And and his wisdom is peaceable and gentle and reasonable and merciful, full of good fruits, impartial, sincere. And there were numerous directions that he gave us last week. How can we go about, how can we go about drawing near to God, submitting to God, Uh, receiving from him that greater grace. And James unfolded to us in various ways. Submit to God, draw near to God, be miserable and mourn, repent, humble ourselves before him. And so he's going to return this week to the subject of speech and language, the wisdom behind our use of language, an intense self-interest and a lack of interest in the character of God. And James is going to show us Human weakness and foolishness, earthly wisdom in comparison to divine greatness and strength and heavenly wisdom from God. He says two things, the first of which is simply this. Speaking against a brother or a sister or a neighbor in judgment is against God. It's actually to judge God. Speaking against a brother or a neighbor is to is to judge God in his word. There's a word that he uses here, kataleleo. It sounds almost Hawaiian, but it's 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 Greek. Kataleleo. Uh, it means to speak against. And it's used in 1 Peter 2.12 and 1 Peter 3.16. And there Peter describes how the world speaks evil against you. And he says, the world speaks evil against you. They don't understand you. They don't know you. They they speak critically of you. And they speak things which are evil and untrue about you. And now James says, the problem is this possibly can be found in the church. That Christians can treat one another in the same way that the world treats us with the derision and the hatred and the false statements Christians may possibly use similar language against one another. What a horrible thing. What a, what a humbling indictment. It's frightening that this is found within the church as well. It's an indictment against the church that sometimes our language and the way that we think and talk about one another, the criticisms we lay out against one another, is on the same level as how the world criticizes the church. 
Isn't that true? I've heard Christian people tear to pieces. I've heard Christian people rip fellow professing believers to pieces, not over a doctrinal issue, but simply over dislike. Genuine hatred, divisions over worldly matters, using derogatory language simply because of physical differences or a difference of likes or dislikes. It's really, the indictment is simply that that kind of speech, that kind of language is worldly, it's unspiritual, it's earthly, and it's demonic. Do we need to hear that today? It's sometimes the way in which we describe one another and talk about one another, the way that we think about one another is, in fact, worldly and demonic. The world is in the church, and James is sounding the alarm, speaking evil against. What is this? Do not speak against one another, brethren. Now, James is not fostering a a sort of idea that none of us could ever express a wise discernment in ascertaining whether or not someone, what someone says or teaches or preaches is right or wrong. The Bereans are commended for the way in which they open the Bible and compare Paul's words, the Apostle Paul, and what he says in light of God's word. James is not saying that that's evil. James is saying not that we can't, uh, he's not saying that we can't Uh, rightly point out where an individual has sinned or rightly discern where an individual has fallen into a, a pattern of sin or is violating in some way their covenant with the Lord and the church. He's not saying that. He's rather speaking in general about your brother or sister in Christ, your your brethren, your neighbor, that if we speak about them in a way that speaks against them, not for any particular reason, but simply because of the dislike of our own heart and the wickedness of our own thinking, to make a a judgment against a fellow believer, not saying untrue things, but, but repeating hurtful or negative things, disparaging unkind words, embarrassing things, suggestions that are deceitful, failing to build up or speak well of another brother or neighbor. To do this is a brooch of the humility that God's people are, are to exhibit. Remember chapter. Remember verse six. B. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we speak against another believer, are we not in some way elevating ourselves, saying, "I'm not like that. I think better than that. My act. My actions are are much more holy and godly than theirs." Surely they ought to be embarrassed by their conduct or their words. We embarrass them, we've exalted ourselves. To speak in these ways necessitates that we speak from a position of imagined superiority in a loftier position, convinced that we're better than these persons, we're of a higher quality. There's a pride behind statements like this, behind tearing apart and speaking evil or speaking against a brother or sister in the Lord. James's labels show us who we are harming, brothers and sisters, neighbors. He's not saying strangers. He doesn't use that word. He says brothers and sisters, neighbors, later on in the same passage. 
That word brings to mind Christ's commands. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do we have a right to criticize and tear apart, speak evil against and embarrass and maybe even use deceitful words, things which are untrue and or simply dislike a person and speak so or or lay it out in our speech simply because they are different than ourselves? We have no right. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One person told me many years ago, blood is thicker than water as they were preparing to leave the church. When he left the church that I was serving and said his family would all leave with him, some did, not all. Some didn't. Yes, blood does bind us together, but one particular blood, the blood of Christ, is is greater and more deeply binding than the shared blood of family units. I look at some of you, you're here today without your spouse or unbelieving family members, aren't you? Because the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of family units, even. Christ commanded that we, we love him more than our family connections, or we would otherwise prove ourselves unworthy of him. And every day that you come to church, you are declaring, yes, I love the Lord Jesus Christ more than I love anyone or anything else. That's what your life preaches to me, to, each, to one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, neighbors, we love one another because the grace of God has reached out to us in divine love to, through the Savior to bring us to Christ. And that's what lies behind Christian love. And having experienced that love, therefore I love you and you love me. And we <clears throat> exercise love and our care for one another. Because the love of God in Christ Jesus stands behind us. So as brothers and sisters, as neighbors, this puts us all in the same level playing field. Regardless of our financial differences, regardless of our our differences of class, I don't know any who are first class or, or of higher class in here. I think we're all relatively middle class folk. This is the type of church that we're in. We're all on the same plane. Regardless of our differences in expendable income, regardless of our differences in culture and race, upbringing, parent or lack of parents, adoptions, born in biological child into a family, doesn't matter. We're all placed on the exact same level playing field. Brethren, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, It's highly improper, it's foolish, it's ridiculous, it's embarrassing if we seek to exalt ourselves against one another. Pride is foolish, isn't it? It's embarrassingly foolish. The critic and the criticized stand together before God as brethren, sisters, brothers, neighbors. What if we do speak unjustly or untruthfully or unkindly against the brethren? We speak evil against the law, the word of God. If we do speak evil against each other, then we are guilty of violating the the ninth commandment, perhaps even the sixth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Countless commands of kindness and of love, of building up one another, taming our tongues, preserving the reputation of a brother, sister, neighbor, all of those things are throughout the word of God. Every sin involves our 
lifting up of ourselves against the commands of God and declaring we've drawn a very different conclusion. We know God that you have we know God that you have instituted in your word that this is what pleases you. This is what is necessary. This is what is required. This is the way that we are to love. This is the way that we are to interact with one another. One another think about one another. Yet whenever we transgress that, we are saying, Lord, I've I've come to a very different conclusion. I think it's proper for me to think this way about my brother, my sister, my neighbor. We simply say, well, I know better than the word of God. There's something better than the very nature of God that is behind his law. We've judged the word of God. Satan did this with Eve in Eden, didn't he? Eve, what God told you is not entirely truthful. The truth is, if you partake of this, you will know and you will see good and evil in the way that God sees it. Somewhat true, but not entirely full in its explanation. Indeed, her eyes were open. She saw evil. She saw wickedness. She saw her own nakedness. Satan will do this with you, too. Well, it's right and proper to think about people in this way. It's, it's good for me to be critical of this person. It perhaps might help me to, in some way, help them to elevate themselves and improve their behaviors. Well, who made you judge? Who made you their judge? James actually asks us at the end, who are you? Some of us need to be asked that question, who are you? We elevate our own understanding. We elevate our own perceptions of people. We elevate our assessment of holiness, of godliness. And we make judgments against one another. And James says this cannot be. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. They are your neighbors. You're on the same plane before God. Oh, but sometimes we have judged the word of God. We have said in our secret hearts that God is mistaken. We've taken up a position against him, and thus we've judged God and his law. We need to repent of such sinful attitudes. We have valued our opinion more highly than his. We've disputed his authority. James rebukes us by telling us who God is. Who is God? Well, he is the the only lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. <clears throat> he says it. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Who are you? A worldly person who exalts self-dependence, selfishness, self-will, self-rule, personal sovereignty. The second thing he comes to in this passage this morning is speaking presumptively, as he's speaking about speech. Secondly, speaking presumptively without reference to God. Well, what's in view here in verse 12 and or 13 and following is to speak arrogantly and selfishly about about our intentions, about riches, about work, about life, and about the next events over the next day, or in the near future, the next week or month or year. 
It's always a good thing to present uh, or to create in your own life a, a, a plan for the year. Perhaps there are financial plans to pay down certain debts or to lose a certain amount of weight or to make certain that we are a little less angry around our home and maybe we'll deal a little differently with our interpersonal conflicts. Maybe we'll love just a little bit more our spouses, our children. Maybe we'll create opportunities for a relationship in some way, ask the Lord to open wide doors to us. Perhaps we set plans in motion for ministry. It's all good. But if you leave God out of the equation, none of it will come of good. None of it will go anywhere, and perhaps the Lord will, in fact, be against them. That's what's in view here. James is talking about planning and about making plans about income and about providing for it, making plans about tomorrow and about the future without thinking about God. I find sometimes that I can do that for a day. I can get up in the morning and I'm so very busy getting up and getting on with the work of the day that I can forget. And at some point I'm arrested in my thinking, the Spirit of God reminds me, you didn't start with prayer. You didn't open the Word. And I have to stop what I'm doing and go back and realize, I can't believe I forgot. I just got caught up in events. I had to get someone somewhere. I had to go pick up someone. I had to, to get on the road one way or the other. It just slipped my mind. I'm pretty consistent about my prayer life and about opening my Bible. But, you know, sometimes if the day is busy enough, if there's enough before me, I can easily forget God. But the Lord helps me. And the Lord will help you too if you're truly his. How can we as children of God ever entertain notions or make plans without in some way involving God in our in our in our goals? Do we not realize that we are subject to God's sovereignty? That it is God's will that overrules our own? There's relevance here for the executive who plans his conferences, who calls long into the future, for the person looking for a new kind of work or a new job, the, the entrepreneur who dreams of bigger things, the investor who makes an investment, the wife or husband who plans the budget, even a child as he or she thinks about what's next and about allowances and what the next purchase should be. Has God entered into your thinking? Parents, have you taught your children that they are to give to God, that the Lord receives the first fruits of all things? It's a small way in which your children can be brought into an understanding that all the blessings that we receive are of the Lord, that our plans, our future plans, are subject to God's will. Sometimes sinfully, we respond by assuring ourselves that time is on our side, that we're we're the captain of our destinies, that we're in charge. We can have all that our heart desires, that we can plan on the assumption that I'm going to wake up over the next six or seven days. I can plan my week because I'm certain that the sun will rise. I will awaken. I will not be undermined by some critical disease that all of a sudden overtakes me. Or that perhaps I, I don't awake. I don't awaken that I don't wake up, that I go to sleep, I lay my head down and I awaken 
before the judgment seat of Christ. We assure ourselves that time is on our side. Our ambitions tell us we don't really have to think about God or our own mortality. That time is on our side. Heaven is at our disposal. We make plans as if personal profit alone should be involved in our decisions. We don't have to think about God. We don't ever have to think about whether or not our purchases of things or the ways in which we plan our days glorifies God. We believe that fate is on our side. And we make our plans. But verse 12b asked us, who are you? And verses 13 through 17 answer that question. That question. There are things that perhaps we've overlooked. You are a person, he says, that has no knowledge of the future. That's what he says. Come now, you who, who will say tomorrow or to, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city. Spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Think about that. All, all of us as human beings here in this room, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You can make an assumption that it will probably be like today, but it may not be. It is subject to the will of God. It is subject to the will of your Father. The truth is, you have no knowledge about the future. You and I, we are ignorant about future events. But secondly, James tells us, your life is fragile and brief. It's a mist. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You're just a vapor, a mist. What does the psalmist say? We are only dust. Dust. Kansas, the 70s, 80s rock band used to sing of it. There are Christians in that band. I love that band. And they would say, all we are is dust in the wind. It's true. The truth is that our life is fragile. It's brief. We have no knowledge of the future. And so James helps us. What we ought to say is, well, if the Lord wills. And I think sometimes we can reduce that to kind of a, a mantra where we say, well, Lord willing, I'm going to go so to such and such a place. We, we have to mean it. We have to humbly recognize the truthfulness of that statement. If the Lord is willing, I'll be there tomorrow. If the Lord is willing, if the Lord enables me, if the Lord is willing that I should, I will give such and such. If the Lord is willing, I'll make these plans with you and I'll commit to be there what we ought to say is, well, if the Lord wills. The truth is, the Bible establishes that God and his will is vital. Acts 15, verse 18 says, God has established his plans in his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable existence. It says, known to God from all eternity and are all his works. We are predestined, according to Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. A sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from your father's will, Matthew 10, 29 and 30. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It is God who works in 
you, both to will and to do his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. Dear Christians, as we come to a conclusion, you're not master of your life. You're not the master over your life. You're not in charge. Your life is hidden in Christ Jesus. Your life is fragile. You are physically a mist. You can do nothing apart from him. And unless it is his will, your plans will be devastated and broken. Your choices are not the deciding factor God's will is. Even with regard to our salvation, we may say, well, at some point I believed and I came to the conclusion that I needed to believe and I believed certain things about myself and sin and about God who led you to that belief, who enabled faith, who worked in your heart before you had even come become aware of that necessity to believe those things. God the Holy Spirit, God who is sovereign, God who is all truth, God whose will overarches, God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Your choices are not the deciding factor. God's will is. And so we ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord is willing. I'll look for a future wife or husband. If the Lord is willing, he will provide. I'll pay off my debts if the Lord is willing to help me do it. I'll go and I'll make plans to go on vacation and and I'll worship the Lord on Sundays if the Lord is willing and enables and helps me to afford it and to gives me the opportunity. I'll make an investment, Lord, if you're willing, will you bless it? If the Lord is willing. You know, I'm not a fan of the NFL per se, but I'm told there are many Christians in the NFL, and I've heard the testimonies of many. I do believe they're genuine. I can't understand that they would suspend the worship of the Lord on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday so that they might play, but that's the way it is. I do believe that there's some who are believers. Do you know that there are believers on both sides of these sports teams that are praying for, Lord, if you are willing, help us win. It, it comes down to the will of God. Even the fall of the football on the field is according to God's will. It is. It cannot fall in a maverick sort of way and in some way in defiance of God's will itself. Don't we need God's will? Don't we need his wisdom all the more? Augustine gave us, I think, a, a helpful mantra. I think it's limited. It needs some explanation. But he says, love God and then do as you please. He's not advocating for us to live in a way that is, that, that is in violation of the law of God. He's simply saying, love God first and then live in such a way that, that you live according to what God has placed in your heart to do and to be and to love. In other words, love God first and then follow those things that God has given you a natural predilection for that are in agreement with his will. Love God and then do as you please. I, I think there's, to some extent, something that we need to hear. I think that's something that we need to hear as Christians because I think we sometimes are crippled by, I'm not certain if God will bless this. Well, 
Augustine says, love God, make certain that in your heart you've placed him first, you're dependent upon him and his will, and then go do as, as your heart directs and leads, knowing that God will lead you in the right way. He will not permit you to be stum- to stumble or fall by the wayside. Love God and do as you please, as he has led you to desire to do. American Christians, though, I think often say, love the world, do as you please, and say that you love God. (laughs) Love yourself, do as you please, say that you love God. That's not what Augustine said. The Lord Jesus had a lot to say about submission to his will, a lot to say about what our perspective on the future should be. He illustrated this in Luke chapter 12. He said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, how many goods you have laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now you will own what you who will own what you have prepared. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Dear friends, we need to repent. As we conclude, we need to repent of the sinful approach to life that is worldly and does not factor God into our choices and decisions. We need to repent of where we have made decisions and not involved in some way a consideration of what God wants, of what God is calling us to, We need his wisdom, and perhaps we have not relied on his wisdom. We have not sought it, because it would mean that our plans would be undermined, because we know that what plans we have made are not necessarily pleasing to God. We need to commit every decision to him, even willingly surrendering to his choice and direction with a a bold and believing certainty that his will is always better than ours. We need to fix it in our minds that we can do nothing without his permission. To not leave God when we go to work. We have to determine that when we leave this place on Sunday mornings, we will take God with us. I think oftentimes we leave God here. We go about our regular decision making, our our, our life in our homes, our workplaces. And we forget that God has a direct concern over how we live, how we think, what we do, how we speak. Your tomorrow, dear friend, is not inevitable. It's not certain. Our hope is not in mechanical or universal law, natural necessity, personal rights, the sun coming up again tomorrow. There will be a day when the sun will not rise. When the earth has come to an end and Christ has come with archangels and a shout of acclamation and the world will melt, the universe And the new heavens and the new earth will come forward 
from him. We think that our tomorrow is inevitable because of personal rights, but it it will only come to you by the covenantal mercies of a gracious and generous God. If you live today and you put your head on the, the, the on the pillow tonight and you get up and you wake up in the morning and you look and you're alive, you're there because of the covenant mercies of God, not because you took a vitamin B12 or, or because you, you work out really well or you've eaten the right things. You're there because God... God has perhaps used those means, but because God himself has preserved your life. And so be conscious of your dependence upon him. Take notice of your thinking, your speech about others, your conscious dependence upon God for your planning, your presumptions. Confess your presumptions to God. They say something about the state of your soul and about the level of worldliness in yourself. So do our sins of omission. Did you miss that at the very end? To one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. This is in reference to verse 11. The one who knows what the word of God says, knows what the law of God is, and yet does it anyway, who transgresses that law and lifts himself up against God is somehow a a greater mind or with greater understanding than the Lord and his word. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. And one day we'll stand before him. And the question James asks us is, who are you? Who are you? We can take that in a lot of different ways and simply answer, well, I'm, I'm a child of God. Or we can take it in a rebuke, in a, a, a rebuking sense of the word, who who are you? Who do you think you are? To lift yourself up against God's word, to somehow make plans about the future and, and think about your day and about the next days and the next years and months and weeks without in any way considering that God is involved or should be involved in our decisions. We sin not only by committing sin against God and transgressing his law, but also by not doing what we know God's word commands. Let us therefore confess our sin to him and find that he is gracious and loving and merciful. He is willing to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Let us make certain that 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 statement is always in our lips, on our lips. Lord, if you are willing. Lord, if you are willing. Lord, if you are willing, you can save me from my sins. Lord, if you are willing, I will live today and not die. Lord, if you are willing, you will bring me safely to my destination. Lord, if you are willing, you will help me to pay off my obligations. Lord, if you are willing, I will love and be loved. Lord, if you are willing, you will bring the right person in my life. Lord, if you are willing, I will serve you all the rest of my days. Lord, if you are willing, you will save me. You'll save my soul. Restore me. Regenerate. Save me according to your grace. Cause me to walk always and continually in your covenant. Lord, if you are willing. May the Lord indeed be willing. Let's pray.
Our Lord, our God, we give thanks to you. Lord, we thank you that you are willing, that you have declared your will in your word. We thank you that you are, your will is made clear to us. We thank you, Lord, for your word that challenges us about sins which we have committed in the transgression of your law and sins which we have omitted, or sins which we have committed by way of omitting the things which we know to be an obligation to us. Lord, help us to flee from sin. Lord, if you are willing, we can have victory over our sins. Lord, if you are willing, you can bring us safely, victoriously home. Lord, if you are willing, you can help us to increase in righteousness, grow in godliness, desire more day by day to walk in holiness. Lord, if you are willing, we will serve you to the end of our lives. Lord, if you are willing, would you call us to even greater faithfulness and service, ministry? Lord, if you are willing, give us give us the days that you have ordained and bring us safely through them. And into your presence one day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Let's stand together and sing hymn number 409, hymn number 409.